So, <clears throat> the my goal, one of my goals for this year was to give a series of talks on the paths to enlightenment, and there are quite a number in the Buddhist um, world, and I'm, uh, of course, I'm only going to be talking about paths within the Theravadan tradition. I'm not a Zen Buddhist, nor am I a, Tha- uh, a um, Tibetan Buddhist, uh, but I, I will be talking about different paths available within the Theravadan, which is the Buddhism of Southeast Asia primarily, and also known in the States uh, often as um, Vipassana Insight. Uh, and so I'm going to be giving a bunch of, a series of talks on the way that the, the specific paths that lead from where we are to a, the eventual goal of liberation from suffering and needless uh, stress in our lives. And um, none of these paths I'm going to be talking about are recommended over any other. They're all valid. It's, think of it in terms of you were on a mountain, and so far we've all been, uh, let's say, on the main path, but then the paths fork off into different <coughs> routes up the mountain. And it's up to you to choose which path you follow. And at no point am I going to uh, uh, urge in one direction. I will carefully delineate some of my the reasons why I think uh, paths are worthwhile and some of my concerns about them. But if you feel drawn to a path, um, Definitely follow it, and there are teachers certainly available for each of these paths. So, um, and uh, tonight I'm going to be starting with the path that was uh, delineated by Mahasi Sayadaw in his, prog- his uh, Progress of Insight. So, to give a little background, the Buddha existed somewhere around 2,500 years ago, and he is attributed with the Pali Canon, which for a very long time, practically the first 1,000 years of Buddhist practice in the Theravada, uh, was, the Pali Canon was considered to be the only text. It was, but it's a huge, huge, huge collection of uh, text. It's, uh, it's got everything from huge volumes of numbered lists and volumes of verse volumes of very abstract, volumes of what reads like poetry, volumes that um, are like recipes, it seems. So uh, it's a little bit difficult when people are approaching uh, just the Pali Canon to discern some of the, the roots directly from uh, where we are in life to a place where we have less suffering, less uh, discomfort, less uh, emotional distress. So um, in, I'm going to be talking about some of the oldest Buddhist methods next week, but for tonight, um, it's worth knowing that around a thousand years after the Buddha, uh, a monk in Sri Lanka wrote what's known as the Visuddhimagga, which is a path of, uh, which is a basically a series of comments that sort of attempted to, uh, to define a specific set path through Buddhist practices to <coughs> attain something akin to enlightenment. 
And for many, many, many years, this then became the sort of second text that everybody in Theravada revered. But the problem with uh, Buddha Gosa is that it's very dense and it's very difficult to work through, and it really wasn't very much of a, of an, of a quick improvement, in my opinion at least, over the original Pali Canon. But uh, thankfully, in around 1940, oh, I can't maybe it was the late 1940s, Mahasi Sayadaw, who's a Burmese monk, came along and he really uh, simplified it into a set of very uh, set stages that are kind of, um, without doing too much injustice to them, I can introduce them to you. His path, based on the Vasudhi Maga, he retells it. And in many ways, what he does is um, he completes a journey. In early Buddhism, the path to enlightenment invariably focused on uh, concentration or tools based on replacing unskillful actions with skillful actions. But there was another tool available called sati, or mindfulness, or uh, what we now also call insight practice, which is based on uh, a third way of approaching our experience. I'm going to be describing what that is. So it's just worth knowing that the, what I'm going to be describing to you is just the work of Mahasi Saida and no one else. And uh, his path, though, is very um, still much practiced by, uh, I would say, probably millions of people across the globe. It's a very influential one. Um, so I'm going to start. The very first four steps of achieving enlightenment, according to Sayadaw, start with first knowing what the, practice, what the process of insight is going to be like, or what the process of, of awareness is going to, how, it's, how we're going to focus our attention, how we're going to use our mind in this practice. And so it's outlined as essentially what is now known as uh, bare attention, noting our experience, our internal experience, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis without adding any judgment or criticism simply noting how in each moment there's changing sensations, sensations arising and passing. And then he goes on to add the other two marks of existence, which were noted occasionally in the Pali Canon, which are not only is everything changing, but then also be aware that because we are living in a dream of sensations that are constantly moving, thoughts, feelings, body <clears throat> sensations. There's also a sense of uh, if we attach or fix our happiness, our, um, our sense of uh, this is where I'm going to find my peace of mind on something that's continually changing, that that's not going to be satisfactory. If, for example, I base my entire happiness on my career, but then I notice that even while I'm really focused on my career, I'm still subject to thoughts of low self-esteem, worry, panic, financial fear, 
concerns about what other people are thinking about me, then all that work has not accomplished any goal in terms of creating lasting happiness or satisfaction. If I'm aware of what's going on inside, and I see, for example, that even though I might be writing a book or I might be uh, in a relationship or I might be doing this or I might be doing that, if I still notice that all my internal experience is constantly changing, not under control, and not bringing any lasting happiness. One thing I can be sure of, it's this is not a lasting, reliable tool for creating peace of mind. The Buddha basically referred to the, the you know, this tendency as the worldly winds. We tend to chase after... Um, approval from others. We tend to chase after things that give a sense of financial or monetary security. We tend to chase after things that feel really good in the short term. Drugs or sex or whatever, shopping. We tend to chase after fame. But all of these things, even when we get there, they don't leave us fulfilled. They don't result in a state that is permanent and securely peaceful. We still feel this sense of there's something missing, there's something uh, maybe lacking. So that's the second part. The first part, again, is every sensation is changing. The second part is if it's constantly in flux and beyond uh, control, then it's not satisfactory to bringing lasting peace and uh, happiness into my life. And the third is also the quality of not taking anything we experience that's changing personally. If it's constantly changing, if a mind state, say we are prone to states of uh, confusion or boredom, but we notice that those states change just as quickly as they arise, then we can be sure that we have maybe a tendency at most to feel that emotion, but it doesn't define us because it's changing. It's not lasting. It's not something that's constantly <coughs> present. I used to have, many, many years ago, uh, when I was, I was counseling somebody who was constantly referring to themselves as angry. I'm an angry person. And each time they called me up, they, I, when they said, I'm so angry, I'd ask, after a little while, well, are you angry now? And invariably, they w wouldn't be. They'd say, well, no, I'm not angry at this moment. <laughs> So, the, so the, the desire to claim anger as that's who I am was limiting. And it was creating a need to own something that didn't need to be owned. It's not personal what we experience that's passing. It's just at most tendencies we have. But we're not chained to them. So let's work with these three core Realizations. This is what Sayadaw pointed to as what we're going to be looking for with our bare attention. We're going to be looking for the signs of things that are impermanent, and then we're going to or influx, changing, arising, and passing. And then from the, that realization, we're going to conclude or know deeply that this is not a source for lasting happiness, nor is it something that points to a lasting uh, sense of identity. I don't have to take it personally. 
So, given these tools of focusing inwardly, not adding judgment, not uh, taking things personally, Sayadaw noted that very quickly what's going to arise is a false sense of, oh, I got this shit down. I figured this shit out. This is not so bad. You know, I, I, I'm now meditating. I got a good practice. I'm, work, I'm meditating 25 minutes a day. I'm talking to my friends about it. They don't look too thrilled, but still, I, they, they're glad that I'm, not, that I'm not drinking all the time or whatever. So this is a good thing. And, of course, there is nothing wrong with just continuing to practice for a long while just in the state of observing and um, not taking things personally, just noting the arising and passing of phenomena during our meditation, to uh, add a sense of uh, kindness where possible to make it easy to detach, but that's not the end of the path by any means. In fact, it's kind of that last glimmer of, of joy for a while before we go into um, a, a much uh, more difficult phase of the journey. Now, um, and Sayadaw said that for those who want to continue towards enlightenment, they have to push on. That what we've accomplished so far is not enough. <clears throat> the next stage is rather than simply noting the fluid things arising and passing, oh, here's a thought, here's a body sensation, here's this, here's that, <clears throat> begin to really focus on what he called disillusion. Um, uh, dissolution means simply the radical impermanence of experience. Noticing things going away, that things are not lasting, that each moment or each experience, in fact, is in essence not only changing, but it's changing really quickly. I don't, well, last night when I was teaching this, I was snapping a lot, so I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I'll do this. It's, 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 uh, it's passing really quickly. Uh, in fact, Saidah uses the phrase, if you really begin to really begin to observe with a real, lucid, discerning mind, your exact experience, you find that each moment is passing by really quickly. Da -da -da, you know, and, 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 and we begin to feel this real kind of destabilizing realization that nothing is lasting. That everything is impermanent each on each moment itself. There's so many different sensations, thoughts, feelings, emotions, moods passing through. And if we really become lucid and aware and present, there's this real sense of... <laughs> <laughs> and this... Um, <laughs> this leads to a, uh, a state... And he uses a, a Pali term for kicha. Uh, 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 I can't remember the exact word, but he uses the phrase that denotes. Uh, well, first he says fear will rise. There's going to be a real sense of fear because the more we see how impermanent and and 
changing out there, winning it, changing, <laughs> changing everything is, we will begin to get a little bit really concerned because it seems now that everything we've been depending on for bringing us a lasting sense of purpose and meaning in life, we're beginning to see slip away. We're beginning to realize that the feelings that are going on in relationships, when we're in a new relationship, yay, but holy shit, this feeling is slipping away. This state is slipping away. Holy shit, the joy of my new iPad, it's no longer the same. Holy shit, my new, my new apartment doesn't seem as big. It seems a little bit smaller every day. Holy shit, you know, this job that I thought was going to be the solution to everything, it's not quite as you know, wonderful anymore. And so, eventually, this sense of fear turns into, and he uses the word that literally translates to despair. The sense of, oh, damn. <laughs> I've been looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> I've been hoping that this, that I can pin and depend on, you know, the fact that I'm a resourceful person, that I'm a this kind and that, that kind, but the more we look at ourselves and we look at the external things of the world, we begin to see that nothing is really, is really, uh, uh, everything's conditional, everything's in flux, everything is dissolving really, really quickly. And it's, it's important to note that as we get into these despairing uh, states, that as, a, as we were talking about last night, the really important thing is to not allow the despair in the next stage, which, which Sayadaw says is kind of disgust with the way most people are going about finding happiness, running around, you know. When the, the funniest thing is when, when people start becoming really spiritual, just the amount of disgust we can feel just, you know, around Christmas shopping time. Oh, what are these people doing? That's not where, that's not where peace of mind is. Cramming into malls and, you know, buying this and, and that. And, you know, so we feel a kind of disgust with, like, you know, not just late industrial capitalism, <laughs> but really, just a, a sense of disgust with so much of what we've been taught in our culture, our society, the people around us, all the advertisements and the, the consumer mindset and the idea that there's something, you know, that I need to get that will make me happy. We begin to see through that and we become disgusted. And the key, though, to realize is that we can't allow this disgust and this despair and this fear to push us out of our spiritual practice, no matter what. You can feel all the disgust you want for the idea of like trying to shop away the blues, but if it comes and it spreads to your meditation or your spiritual community or your, your, your deep continual return to the practice, then you're in trouble, because if you quit now, you're quitting in the worst part. <laughs> you're actually quitting when the chips are down. It's like, you know, any gambler will tell you not to do that. No, it's, this is not a gamble. You will, <laughs> you will actually get through. 
But you don't want to leave now because what you'll leave is in the state of bitter, kind of, uh, kind of, uh, a, a kind of alienated state. So what we want to do is we want to continue with this bare insight, this insight practice based, based on just observing the arising and passing of phenomena noting impermanence, noting the radical flux of experience. At this point, Sayadaw says something very interesting. What happens next is we, we develop a healthy desire for some kind of rescue. We're not in a very good place, and it's because of that, he says, that we look for something to pull us out, like we're we almost can feel like we're drowning in change and instability and lack of any kind of transcendent happiness or thing to latch onto. And this happens not just in times of practice, but sometimes when we experience death or loss or we suddenly have a nervous breakdown or you hit 40 years of age <laughs> and you have the midlife crisis or whatever. You know, this can happen at other times, not just in practice, but there comes a point where we feel this desperate need for something that creates meaning amongst, amidst all this um, flood of change, impermanence, unreliability. And so, at this point, Sayadaw <coughs> urges us to return one more time with this radical desperation at our, as our ally, once again, back again into the practice. And he says at this point that what happens is that extra bit of effort, it become, the practice becomes now so ingrained and so automatic that very quickly the mind no longer begins to latch on to anything that's arising and passing. It just begins to sit back and notice these sensations pulsing by, or these moments, I should say, pulsing by, but we no longer feel this desire to turn it into a story about this is where I'm going to find happiness, this is mine, this is who I am, this is, holy shit, this is bad or good. We return to awareness, but from this place of, fuck it, I'm just going to watch. I'm just going to observe. I'm no longer going to take any of this uh, as like the way out. I'm just going to observe it. And this state of observing and uh, equanimity is the moment when liberation becomes available. Because at this point, we no longer are getting wrapped up in all the things that are happening around us. We're no longer taking personally the remarks, worrying what other people are thinking about. We're no longer caring whether the, the this or that is, you know, turning out well. We're just attending, doing the best we can, but taking none of it personally. We're not getting wrapped up. We're not getting pushed around anymore. And it's... It's really important that we stay the course. Uh, there's one point when uh, Saida says that when we get to the place where we're radically looking for some kind of rescue, he says at that point, 
in time, there's going to be this last visit from what we in uh, Buddhists might call Mara, this sort of temptation to give up. When the Buddha was just on the ver- was uh, had just achieved enlightenment, and he was uh, in that state, Mara, which is sort of the incarnation of his uh, his fear, his self doubt, his desire to give up, visited the Buddha and said, "This is too hard. This shit. This meditation. Fuck that. You smart guy." Your dad's rich. You could have anything you want. We could be really fucking powerful. We could fucking rule the world. What are you doing with this shit sitting out here in the sun, <laughs> meditating in a, in a weird Brooklyn voice, Mara? And the, the Buddha said, no, I, I have achieved it. I am here. Liberation is mine. And so that happens to us as well in this path. We get to this place where we're so attuned to the uh, unreliability and the flux of our existence, its constant shift and change, that we get to a place of just where we, can, where we want to go back, but another voice goes in our heads, eh, this is too tough, fuck it. Let's just, hit, let's just go to a psychiatrist and get some, you know... Uh, some clonopin and be done with this. And <laughs> not really, but anyway, it's basically we it won't, we want it wants out. This was and and Saida says we have to again push through, get back into seeing it, and it's that last stage of just giving up and letting the practice become automatic and just observe it, <coughs> that we get to that place where we can see experience without any more getting mixed up in it or taking it personally. And from this place, when we no longer get caught up into it, we can then begin to relate to it with the skillful, unconditional tools that are available to us. We can cultivate kindness, compassion, appreciation for each moment because it'll never repeat itself again and we've now seen that each time we see a friend that's the last time we might see them again but it will never be exactly the same circumstances we won't ever be in that state we won't ever be that young again we won't ever be in that condition every moment is its last of its kind and when we really no longer take any of it personally or get wrapped up in it we can then begin to greet experience with all the unconditional available attitudes that do create lasting peace i can greet experience with love with appreciation, with kindness, with gratitude for whatever is available. And none of those states can be ever taken away from me. Those cannot be taken away because they're cultivated and sustained by my own effort. They're not contingent upon something that is changing. And the mind eventually can develop this automatic, ingrained practice as well. So even though up until this point, everything about the mind has been impermanent, we begin to actually plant what could be described as transcendent tools of peace that are no longer dependent upon any specific conditions around us. Whether things are going well or poorly, we can still relate to them with appreciation. We can 
be fired or get a new job and we can still appreciate the moment with a sense of appreciation and wonder, a sense of really observing and being kind to ourselves and to those around us. None of that can ever be taken away. At this point, the very final tidying up that Sayadaw says is that we can, uh, this state of peacefulness will be easily detected by the people around us, and we will naturally gravitate towards a community of other spiritual practitioners where our attainments will be seen. In other words, people go, oh, that's a pretty fucking chill dude. He's welcome in our scene. <laughs> the translate. Because <laughs> that's how you hip cats talk. <laughs> yes, we do, right? I'm staying attuned. I have my ear to the ground of culture these days. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, it's a... I think there's a lot of benefits, and there's obviously a, there's some things to be concerned about in this path. The, the benefits are that um, it's a very realizable goal, and it's um, it's like all the paths I'm talking about. It's been proven to work. Uh, I also think that it's it's actually well practiced by a lot of different. Uh, American teachers who have grown up uh, in different trans uh, tra traditions that go back to, or that have been influenced <coughs> by uh, Sayadaw's work. Um, I will say that my concerns, as I've said, as I said last night, is that uh, as Sayadaw states, a necessary part of this path is to a certain degree there's going to be uh, the stages of fear, despair, and disgust. These are stages in this path. In other words, there will be uh, a stage that is very challenging and difficult and, to, uh, and could very easily lead to stages if we're not really well supported by a teacher or by a really supportive community uh, it could lead to a great stage of alienation and stability. Without support, we will almost certainly at some stage along this bail. So it really needs to be done uh, in a very supportive community. It should be noted that when Sayada proposed this course, he actually proposed it for people in monasteries, not just nuns and monks, but for people who were simply lay practitioners who were in a monastic environment where they were supported. Now, I won't go so far as to say that you have to find a monastery to do this path, because it's not always practiced that way, but you should definitely, if you go along this journey, be deeply supported. Um, there are other paths. So, before you decide on which journey to take if you're not yet on a, a longer-term vision of what you'd like. If you want to practice and deepen your Buddhist journey, before you make a decision, just hear out the other ones that I'll be describing in the next few weeks. If you can't attend, I'll post the talks, and I can also, I'll also post links to describing them. So uh, I think I'm going to wrap it up there. 
I'd like to open up to some questions. Uh, I'd like to thank you. For those of you uh, who are leaving now, if you could contribute so that we can pay the rent and keep sustaining. I hope that there was something of value that you heard, and you'll forgive me if anything I said uh, was unintentionally harmful. So thank you. Hi. Hi.